Hey David, we are back and we are still in the baptism of Jesus. It's just, it's layer upon layer. It's magnificent. And we <laughs> lent in in our last episode, just looking at the, the coming of the Holy Spirit and how important that was. But then we we came to this cliffhanger moment, this profound, mm. supernatural, but also deeply intimate moment of the Father speaking to Jesus. And, mm. and we, we want to spend a little bit of time leaning into that in this episode. So we, would you like to read those beautiful words for us again from Luke chapter 3, verse 21, yes. and, and then we'll kick into it. Yes. So th- just to remind you of the text, it says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry, and he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. And then Luke gives us this this very extensive genealogy, working his way back through characters As we noted in the last episode, John, even Jesse appears there, potentially just reminding us of some of these Isaiah texts. Mm. Uh, Boaz appears there, of course, perhaps reminding us of the welcome of of Ruth into this family. Uh, And then we end up with these phrases, the son of Adam, the son of God. And then Luke starts this phrase, which is following directly on from the baptismal story. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. <laughs> which, which, again, is one of these brilliant like Luke's way of ending stories. You know, the, you're my son in whom I'm well pleased, and Jesus was 30. And then and he ate nothing for 40 days, at the end of which... He was hungry. hungry. (laughs) But by the way, let me just say this, John, before you take us into more focused discussion. By the way, at the end of them, he was hungry. Jesus sitting down in the heat of the day in John chapter 4 by a well, because Mm -hmm. when humans are hot, they get dehydrated and they need water. We we chuckle, and you and me, we're not being irreverent when we chuckle. But at one level, you can dismiss this. The church history has made those verses have been so important because if you have some people out there arguing that Jesus was not fully human, a verse from scripture saying, oh, and by the way, he didn't eat. And the result of that was he was hungry. Well, guess who gets hungry when they don't eat? (laughs) Humans. uh, So these little throwaway verses are actually so important for our history and confession of Jesus, the the human, aren't they? They are. They're totally important. They're, they're, uh, and again, they're just tucked away. And uh, that's why we need to we need to sort of get into the practice of reading scripture slowly. And I know from my own practice, I read it out loud as well because my brain misses words, especially words that I think I know, and that really does help me. And they're they're all little beautiful. David, to jump back to these gorgeous words of the Father. So these are the first recorded words of the Father to Jesus in the Gospels. So we last time we lent into. What sort of conversations would Jesus have had with the Father? Would he have mm. heard the voice of the Father through Scripture or or directly? And of course, we can't we can't answer these questions, but we do know for certainty that what we're hearing now, Jesus is hearing. 
and hearing these amazing words. And I couldn't help but notice it in, in my reflections. The phrase almost has like three parts to it, which mm-hmm. now again, our, our listeners are going to have to forgive me if they, if they feel I'm overcooking this stuff and, and you will have to push back on me if you feel I, I am. But, but I look at these, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So it, it feels mm-hmm. like there's three elements. Uh, some yes. translations have, you are my beloved son. Um, with you, I am well pleased. So so if we go with that that sort of, you are my son whom I love, with you, I am well pleased. There's three elements. And incredibly, there is, because we, we love this idea of reading backwards or, or allowing the Jesus narrative to inform Tanakh, to inform the Old Testament. And of course, uh, if our listeners have, have been following us and some have been with us from the beginning, they'll know that we've lent into the idea that uh, what we call our Old Testament is made up of three elements in the Jewish scriptures. So the Hebrew Bible has three parts to it. Mm-hmm. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. So Torah is instruction, Nevi'im, the prophets, and Ketuvim, the writings. And in fact, that's where we get the word Tanakh from. It's a sort of a, a way of remembering Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. So, so uh, could this be a coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. But each, I, I've discovered that each statement of the father of those three has an echo in each section of the Tanakh. So let me, let me lean into that. And if, if you think I'm pushing this too hard, then that's fine. But again, I think it's a sense of the loadedness of this. That, that the father's not just saying nice words from a dad to a son, but the mm. father's saying something just that's layered with meaning. So you are my son. I, I think there's an echo there in a beautiful messianic psalm, Psalm 2, that says, you are my son. Today I have become your father or begotten you. Mm. And then it says, uh, you are my son whom I love. Now, this is this is probably the one that's, for some people, most controversial, or it feels like a bit of a stretch, but this takes us back to Abraham and Isaac, where God himself says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. In fact, in the in the Genesis 22 passage, only son is repeated three times in verses 2, verse 12, verse 16. And you have this amazing moment of potential sacrifice. And of course, there's 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 great shadowy, message there in terms of the Lord providing something on our behalf uh, within mm-hmm. that, which I think the New Testament writers pick up on as far as Jesus is concerned. And then the, the third phrase, which you picked up on last time, with you I am well pleased, is Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Now, one, one other little reference, David, to this, and then I'll let you jump in. I know I'm saying a lot to begin with, but I just I just thought there's so much here. What's really fascinating about those three references in the Tanakh, Psalm 2, Genesis 22, and Isaiah 42, is that they also have profound global application. So this is the thing that got me most excited. It wasn't just, hey, John, I think you could be stretching on a little bit, but it was the sense that Every one of those three references has a global out. So, for example, go back to Psalm 2. Ask of me, it says in Psalm 2, verse 8, and I will make the nations your inheritance. Mm. So in Psalm uh, sort of a 2, verse 7, he says, you're my son. And then in verse 8, he says, ask me and I'll give mm. you the nations. 
Then we go to Genesis 22, the son whom I love. And when you read down towards the end of the the, the passage, after God intervenes, says the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. So that's the second global reference in this. And in the third one, and Isaiah is just gorgeous here. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 Uh, The second part of verse one says, I will put my spirit on him. We've talked about that last time. Mm -hmm. And he will bring justice to the nations. And then it goes on to conclude uh, right down at the bottom of that sort of verse four. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. Mm -hmm. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. Mm -hmm. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. So so two things for our our listeners to consider, and I hope I'm not overcooking this, that when we hear these words of the Father, potentially the three elements of the statement of the Father have resonance in the three sections of Tanakh. Psalm 2, mm. Genesis 22, Isaiah 42. So all the twos there help you to remember. But then each of those three have then within the text global application. And when we apply that then to Jesus, just two things for us to think about. Number one, in the words of the Father, the Father is affirming Jesus from the full authority of Tanakh. Every element of Tanakh is represented in the statement. Therefore, it's as if Jesus now gets the affirmation of the whole of Scripture within that. And then secondly, oh, and by the way, what he is about to do will have global impact. The nations of the world will be impacted through this son whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. So I've been bursting to get that out, David. I've, I've probably talked far too much in this podcast <laughs> already, but I've been bursting to get that out because I thought, my goodness, even if we're half right in some of that stuff, then these what sound like very beautiful, intimate, almost simple words of the Father, forgive my language, mm. are actually layer upon layer of profound authority and affirmation, which... Um, pull Tanakh into the life of Jesus and then push that to the ends of the world. Wow. So <laughs> I love this. There's a lot in there, John. I feel like we should just stop the podcast and let people go, hey, listen, this is an 11-minute <laughs> podcast that you need to listen to five times. Um, and I was trying, I'm scrambling a little bit in the background while you were talking to want to not oppose anything you've said, but just add some other things to it. And I, if I recall that you are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased, doesn't appear in John's gospel, does it? That that line's That's missing right. in John's gospel, yeah. right? So in John's gospel, there isn't a baptism scene of Jesus. You yeah. actually just have John the Baptist saying, oh, I baptized him and saw the Holy Spirit come upon him. So, so you lose 
the you lose this the voice of God coming to Jesus saying you're yep. my son in whom I'm well pleased right so okay what's interesting and so if I'm probably just going to spiral off like if you've just blown up a really nice balloon I'm now going to let it go and it's just going <laughs> to spiral off into the ether but you, you you triggered something to me when you were saying this you so you have you are my son this illusion the Genesis 22 illusion was interesting to me mm. John because um this is more just a reflection now. Let me try and organize my thoughts into something more coherent. Take your son, the son whom you love, right? In mm-hmm. Genesis 22, that's the first use of the word love in the Bible. And as, so, so love has not been mentioned up at that point. The Take your son whom you love, and the net result of Abraham's faithfulness is a call to do something for the nations, right? What's really interesting is in John's gospel, you don't get this, you're my son whom I love, right? Mm. But the first mention of love in John's gospel is John 3.16, right? Where in John 3.16, you get God loved the world. He took his one and only son. (laughs) And what did he do? He gave that son for the whole world, right wow. so 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 john john is almost what's the right word to use here but if you lay genesis and yep. isaac next to each other both fathers both love their sons one father is willing to give up his son but god removes that therefore changing how people even think about god and i always love this about genesis 22 the, the bit that you don't often hear preached about so much god says to abraham Bring your son and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham says, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and there's that sense that, why does Abraham say okay? Because in his world, that's what God's always did. Always Sacrificing did. your child to the God was not unusual. And so, and God takes Abraham all the way up the mountain. And in my reading of the story is, and says to Abraham, this is not the type of God I am. Right? Come on. And, um, and then as one of my friends said once, <laughs> wouldn't you love to have a script of Isaac and Abraham's conversation going down the mountain? Going down. <laughs> and uh, and uh, not least Isaac's relationship with Abraham, but hey, what are we going to tell mom? And, <laughs> and uh, but, but, but to the more serious point that God intervenes, this is not the God that I am. And yeah. do you understand that, Abraham? And mm-hmm. only once Abraham can understand that this is not a God who will take our sons from us, mm-hmm. does God now say, and I'm going to be the God that helps you bless the nations. Come so on. then now, now I move to John's gospel, and John says, well, I'm going to give you the first mention of love in exactly the same way as in Genesis. First book of, you know, and bear in mind, is John channeling Genesis? Well, compare the beginning line of Genesis Indeed. to the beginning line of John, and we, we have episodes that deal with that in the past, yes. don't we? But yes. So you've got Genesis in mind, but here by 316, first mention of love, again an only son, but this God does give his son for us and for the world. So John 316, Isaiah 42, John 316, and what do you call it? Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Yeah. You know, and then John 3.16 and Psalm 2 are mm-hmm. this royal psalm as it's known. So I'm I'm not saying anything, I hope, that sounds like I'm opposing what you're saying. I'm just saying no, it's no, interesting no. that maybe John's doing the same thing, but just mm-hmm. in a slightly different verse. In the famous John 3.16's carrying all of this messianic weight in a way that we would say, which... I suppose is all my way of saying, I don't think you're 
reflection is necessarily far fetched, right? Mm. Because I wonder if I wonder if John's doing exactly the same thing. Yeah, no, and I, I have to say I love that, David. I mean, I love your ability to pull John into that and and see that, and of course, John who writes much later. If if John is is also mm. spotting the patterns, if he's spotting mm. the uh, uh, the fact that there is something being pulled together yeah. here from these magnificent yeah. texts that are so core central to mm. to Judaism and and to the idea even to, to the identity of being Jewish in some ways mm. within that, and yet these these the threads are being pulled together in the person of Jesus, the mm. ultimate fulfillment of that identity, the ultimate fulfillment of that idea, as as Paul later tells us, it's it's Jesus is Abraham's seed, and that through that seed the world is blessed. So yes. so we we're, we're getting some just beautiful ideas, and I suppose what. What what I would want our listeners to lean into is don't just hear these words at the baptism of Jesus as like like we might interpret them as words of a father to a son, just bringing a mm. bit of oh I love you you're a good yeah, lad yeah. keep going for it you've done a good job you're doing you're on the right path I and of course we can I say this carefully we, we might be in danger of overhumanizing. The situation mm. and and implying our own human emotions into a moment like this, I I think mm. the father, yes, he's bringing comfort to Jesus, but there is a profound weight of affirmation coming from the echo of the ten right mm. into the heart of Jesus. Passages that he would have read, heard, studied, and now the father saying, "You are the fulfillment of all of these passages," in mm. Psalm two, Genesis twenty two, Isaiah forty two. And of course, if John's picking that up as well in John three sixteen, it is truly magnificent connections that mm. that that once we see bring depth and color to this mm. conversation. And and again, I just I I think these nuances are there to be explored and sat with and thought about. And and by the time if you track at this level throughout all of Luke's gospel, this is happening again and again and again. That, yeah. that, that, oh, there's, there's, there's verses and there's references and there's scripture. And and Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. So it's not yeah. far-fetched to think that the authors of these books would help us see that. So okay. bear in mind, if you, if you were gathered in the first Christian church meeting of Philippi <laughs> and somebody says, let's open the Bible, like mm. They mean the Old Testament. They mean mm-hmm. the Tanakh. But they, nobody's written New Testament by that point. But Jesus is Jesus is back with the Father for, goodness, probably 30 years before we get anything of Christian scripture. I mean, maybe a little little shorter than that. It's possible some of Paul's letters may have been written in the in the late fifties, perhaps, mm. or something like that, mm. and uh, I mean, there's a and there's a lot of discussion over that, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we get distracted, but let's say twenty to twenty five years, the early Christian church has no explicitly Christian texts. All they True. have is the Old Testament. So when Absolutely. you go to church, you're reading the Old Testament. When you yeah. sing songs, you're singing the Psalms. <laughs> you and 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 actually, you see in later history. As Christianity and Judaism start to break apart, one of the concerns amongst certain sort of Jewish traditions is how much the Christians appear to have fully taken the Old yeah. Testament as if it's their own, right? So, so this is a so Luke now is writing, 
let's say, Luke's writing 30, 40 years after mm -hmm. Jesus mm -hmm. returns to be with the Father. So he's writing to churches that had 40 years of reading the Old Testament. So yep. I don't think this sort of stuff is too far-fetched to say, and especially since what we're just saying is, there seems to be some illusions here. We're, we're not saying, so go home and scrap the doctrine that you learned. We're not saying, we're just saying, no. are there layers and layers and layers of beautiful potential oh. nuances going on here that open up what this text could mean for you? Absolutely. And as, as one little aside before we, you know, we move on on this and appeal to our listeners, you know, don't jettison the Old Testament. At the end oh, of the day, it's a crucial part of this conversation. Now, of course, because we have messages within the context of the New Testament that allow us to see the fulfillment of elements of the old and therefore practices that no longer need to be adhered to or ideas that have mm -hmm. been fulfilled and superseded in Jesus. We get all of that. I get all of that. I am firmly rooted in a post-resurrection New Testament world. Yeah, but me too. But it is remembering that the only Bible Paul had was Tanakh. The only Bible Peter, James, John, Jesus had was Tanakh. And they found, they found the kingdom of God in it. They found the mm. purposes of God in it. So it's still there. Mm. The application through the lens of the New Testament is different, but it's still there. And therefore, we we should not jettison. And I think for me, one of the, and I don't, I don't want to, sidetrack is here. I think one of the sadnesses is in the in the fracturing of Christianity from its Jewish roots is that I think we have been profoundly impoverished as a result of that. I mm. think mm. we've lost something of the power of the message because we we have not or cannot read it through uh, a Jewish lens because mm. because of that distance and separation. Whereas that first two, three, four waves of Christian believers would have absolutely understood the rootedness of, of the yes. what we'll call the Christian faith in its Jewish root. And one that I think when we separate them is is profoundly sad and, mm. and impoverishes us in, in great ways. But but I know that's probably another discussion for another time. But it's, but it's worth But I think you I think your point is, is right. And I th and I think that the Western again, let me make a very brief comment. <laughs> but you know, Western anti Semitism has been such that there there have been mm. periods, even in the last century, True. that scholarship has almost attempted to try and distract from. I mean, it got so bad at, at some points that Geza Varmeshi's famous book on Jesus was just called Jesus the Jew. And and which sounds like, like well, what an obvious book title. But when he wrote it in the mid-20th century, that was quite controversial. That, hey, let's remember who Jesus was here. Jesus was Jewish. I went, when we used to be uh, teach at seminary together, John, I, I taught, as you'll remember, I taught a, a class on Pauline studies. And my students used to say to me, what would be a good book to read to help me with this class? And and I used to I used to say Isaiah. And, and, and of course, I mean, I knew that the students were asking for some sort of published scholarship book. But, but I was like, if you really want to understand Paul, <laughs> you probably want to go home and memorize Isaiah because it will make it will make things easy for you. <laughs> Come on, love that. Love that. John, I'd love to talk a little bit about social context if that was possible yep. in this text. Is is 
that Absolutely. is that okay if I if I oh yeah if I, because there's there's an interesting little sort of potential way to read this story which I wonder if might also add a little bit of color to it for for somebody that would want to study this this verse and and that's to say and, and we've made allusion to stuff like this before but just as a very brief reminder a really simple and succinct way to say it is is in terms of social cultural concerns and 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 interactions something you can say which i think is 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 roundly true of the ancient world particularly the world of the new testament is that concern for honor and status mm. sort of pervaded all social interactions in in the world of luke right mm. so whenever you were engaged with with any conversation any argument any appearance in public your reputation was at stake you were yes. you were presenting how am i being perceived by members of the public and and so so you could uh, the way that scholars often refer to this is just as concern for honor right now mm-hmm. now there's rules honor is not a fixed concept what we think is honorable in the modern world different from what would have been honorable in the ancient world but in truth, many, many human interactions are concerned for honor, right? My dad's stronger than your dad, as it starts in the in the schoolyard, is essentially pursuing honor. Now, in in the world of Luke, and this is actually true of all of the New Testament world, honor was achieved through two sort of basic routes. The, the one route was that it was ascribed, and, and that meant that you basically were born into it. So, so your honor was given to you on the basis of, of just where you were fortunate enough to be born. You're the Caesar's yep. son. Guess what? You're a baby with honor, right? You're a slave's son. Guess what? You're a baby with no honor. And um, the other way the honor could happen was that it was acquired. That you could gain honor. So you were a slave's son, but you led an army to defend against some invaders. And all of a sudden, wait a minute, well, you're a bit of a big deal, right? You gave a great speech in the, the, the Roman politics. So, so honor was, was sort of achieved by acquiring it and also by being ascribed it. Now, one of the ways that honor gets acquired is through social interactions, which are often referred to as challenge and riposte. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the things that scholars would tell you of the ancient world is, if you're watching people talk in ancient dialogue in ancient literature, know that there's an honor challenge going on. Who's going to win this argument? Who's not going to win this argument? Great example of this actually is in Galatians chapter two, when when Paul gets up and says to Peter, Peter, you're acting like a hypocrite, yep. and there's no record of a response from Peter. And actually, that tells us that Paul won that argument, right? Yes. Because the fact that Peter had nothing to say back. You see it in so many of the parables of Jesus and the interaction. Jesus says something, and then the text will say, and and the Pharisees were silent. And yeah. we go, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. They obviously couldn't think of anything to say. An ancient reader reads that and goes, oh, Jesus won, right? Yeah. Because silence means you you beat me in the honor challenge. Right? So why I think this is interesting um, is that this passage that we've got here from Luke chapter 3, verse 21, right the way through down then to verse 2 of chapter 4, I think is functioning in a social contextual level Mm -hmm. as an establishment of Jesus's rights and authority and, and his standing in public reputation, right? If if that, if that makes sense, uh, John, because, 
Totally. And, and because, of course, remember, honor is ascribed, as, so that's family honor, okay, so that you get that from where you were born, and it's acquired, that's challenged, repost, doing things which are remarkable. And I think that what happens in Luke's gospel is that, that Jesus is beginning, I'm just looking at Luke at the moment, Jesus' beginnings are a little uncertain, people are not too sure about that. In fact, there may even be some suspicious questions to ask around around his beginnings. And you notice Luke even alludes to that. He was the he son, does. so it was thought, of, of, of Joseph, right? And if you were going to represent yourself well in the ancient world, an anomalous background isn't good for you. That doesn't mm-hmm. that doesn't sort of bode well for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that Luke sets up. He's doing many things. We've talked about the theological stuff he's doing. All of that I, I, I agree with. But Luke can be doing many things at once. And I think one of the things he's doing in this passage is actually intending to convince a possibly skeptical audience yes. about Jesus's standing and Jesus's honor. Does that mm. make sense? Totally. Because so, just look at a couple of things really quickly then, John. So first thing you have, you are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased, right? Yes. This is ascribed honor. Where's this Jesus yes. come from? Well, the heavens just opened and God said, from me. <laughs> so yes. I, I, as far as honors go, and, and I mean this, I, this sound like I, I was going to sound like I was being sarcastic there. In the ancient pagan world, <laughs> Being the son of a god is yeah. about is about as high as it gets. Don't forget, Caesar Augustus was was around about the same time that this story is happening. In the preceding few years, Caesar Augustus has built a temple in Ephesus and carved yes. on the outside of the walls that he is a son of God. Yes. <laughs> so, so, so this is in the ancient pagan listener reads this. Luke's writing to to Greece and to Rome, mm-hmm. they go, oh, okay, well, this is interesting. This seems to be giving Jesus some status. So so what's Jesus's status? Well, he is ascribed honor by God. Yes. But now, and, and I made allusion to this in the last episode, and now Luke goes, I tell you what, let's have a genealogy. Yep. <laughs> and we go, what a strange place to put a genealogy. Well, not if Luke's trying to ascribe honor to Jesus at this point, right? Okay. Because Okay, first first tick in your tick box of, of approved status, God. Second, in, in, a, in a culture which is quite illiterate, in a culture where people don't keep long records, most people only know their genealogy for a couple of, like poor people with no honor would yeah. know their gene, genealogy to a couple of, hey, the father, Jacob, whose father was Isaac, whose father yeah. was Abraham, uh, that's it. That's, yeah. you, you see genealogies in threes. Luke rolls out this <laughs> extensive Amazing. genealogy. Which you and I read in this day and age and go, like, seriously, is this long enough? Well, in the ancient world, the only people that have long genealogies are people with a lot of honor, right? Because that probably means they've had the prestige that somebody's been keeping track of this. Somebody's cared enough to keep track of this. So, So again, the ancient world, you see a long genealogy, you go, ooh. Wow. Again, not dissimilar to our world. Royal families have bigger family trees than any of us can put together. We get a bit a bit cloudy over that uncle over there. <laughs> so so now, and of course, not to mention, guess where Jesus' genealogy ends up? It ends up as son of God, right? Which the average Jewish person, I think, reads this, goes, well, we all end up there. So that's not yes. actually. But in a Greco-Roman, to a Greco-Roman yeah. readership, like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Right. So, so then what happens immediately after acquired, sorry, ascribed honor from God the Father, ascribed honor from an impressive genealogy, guess what Jesus does next? Yep. Heads off for a test, 
right? Yes. And now if you think about how do you gain honor, you gain honor by doing great challenges, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and they're done by challenge and repost. We'll look at the conversation. We'll read about it in future episodes. <laughs> Devil brings a challenge to Jesus. Jesus bats him down. Devil brings another challenge, bats him down. Eventually, the devil goes away because he can't beat Jesus. So by the time you get to Jesus turning up in the synagogue in Nazareth, Mm -hmm. notice Luke 4.14, he returns in the full of of the power of the Spirit and news about him spread. So I think there's a way of reading this this sequence of text that we're going to spend more time over the next few weeks talking about. There's a way of reading it as... To the ancient mind, this is this is Luke establishing Jesus' mm-hmm. ministry credentials. Yeah. He can do this. Yes. <laughs> he comes from the right places and and he can also defend that honor and defend that reputation well. Now, that might be nothing more than just a, a quirky thing for people to read. And I've now gone on for too long talking about that, John. But I just think that's kind of neat to see that Brilliant. color and nuance there. It's 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 more than neat. It's brilliant. It's absolutely outstanding. And again, what it does is it gives multi-dimensional to the gospel writers. Mm. So modern 21st century readers, we just tend to think of them as, oh yeah, they record the story of Jesus, right? So it's just a bunch of facts mm. strung together. What yes. we've tried to do in various episodes and various series is show, no, these guys really are working their context. They're reflecting their context. They're both reflecting their culture and challenging their culture. And there are certain things within their cultural world that demand a response. Mm -hmm. And of course, Luke's gospel at one level, like all the other gospels, but certainly Luke's gospel written to Theophilus and the book of Acts, which follows it up, you could place firmly as a strong apologetic. It's a strong Mm -hmm. defense of Jesus. It's a strong apologetic and defense of the church. At a time in the Roman world when they were coming under greater and greater and greater mm. challenge and threat. Mm. So, so of course, Luke is speaking to the challenges of his society mm. over, on, over questions like authority and mm. honor. And does he have the weight to be able to do what he does? And, and of course, some of our listeners will, will hear, even within the Jewish context, by what authority do you do these things? How, how yeah. are you able to do this? Who who gave you this authority? There are question marks. But of course, what what they don't know is that now we know that there's a backstory here. And because yes. of how Luke and the gospel writers have pieced together this information and connected it from the words of the Father to the genealogy to now uh, as we're going to lean into in weeks to come, this incredible combative moment with the adversary that mm. actually he is establishing the honor of Jesus. And and I do I do really love, I love Dr. Luke's little throw in there. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. I do oh, yeah, find that, I, I can't read that without smiling. I find that really quite touching, quite brilliant. Mm. Almost, I can see Dr. Luke wink as he reads mm-hmm. that to us. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. And then he he begins to explain out of the words of the father and into the genealogy who Jesus really is. It's outstanding. It's an outstanding piece of, I mean, you summarized years of scholarship. And I know, I know you've written a magnificent PhD on this in terms of the whole <laughs> honor and shame culture in Galatians. And my goodness, for our, for our listeners, 
to have a summary so brilliant as that in just a few moments shows the level of of your brain power, David. But also, also, also how helpful it is to Mm. sometimes in some of these glorious texts to lean beyond even the theological and see the cultural, political, social context to, mm. to all of in which all of these documents were written because it can add dimensions and depth yeah. that are truly beautiful. Well, and and if I can if I can circle back for a second, John. You 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 made that point. You love that line. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. Right? But but that's really fascinating. Again, it's a beautiful little comment. I think it's carrying a ton of weight. Right? Mm. So mm. you are my son, whom I love. Mm. With you, I am well pleased. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. Now you get son of Heli, son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph, son, and he keeps going for, yeah. I should have counted, but there's a lot of names. Lot of in names. the ancient world, where stereotyping is quite a big thing, son of doesn't mean yep. that this person is your biological father, right? Now, it does mean that, yes. but the reason we're interested in who your son is is because that tells us what type of person you are. And so, so to say, I mean, we, we, it's a saying even in the Western world, isn't it? Like father, like son, right? Yeah. The, the, so, so it's not just, oh, here's an interesting group of people. This is the type of person he is. So it's fascinating then that you get, you're my son, the beloved one. Now let's, now we give you a list of people of whom it is thought Jesus is related to. Fascinatingly, if you follow this list of who the people Jesus is in keeping with, you end up with God, yes. <laughs> who we were told at the very start, this is who his actual father is. Yeah. So this, this, so it was thought really powerful. But why that's really interesting then to me is look at what I'm just. We're getting slightly ahead of ourselves, but I, but I think it will be easier to do it now than remember it in two or three weeks' time. What is the devil's opening Indeed. line to Jesus? Yep. If you if are. You are the son of God. It's yeah. a challenge to his honor. It's a challenge to his status. It's a challenge to the truth. I mean, this th- goodness, we'll probably do a whole podcast on that one sentence, but but it's interesting how it loops around. The, the question is being asked of Jesus everywhere. Who are you? And what Jesus has, and this is what I think is really interesting, is that Jesus has to, like all of us, through the power of the Spirit, remember the truth. That you are the son of God. Now, because why that's interesting is that, you, for me anyway, why it's interesting. Luke chapter 4, verse 1, so the end of this genealogy, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, right? I, we've, we've read backwards at many times over the last two episodes, so let's, let's just have some more reading backwards. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. Indeed. Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the desert in order to humble you and test you. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same word as is used in Luke. And and to test you, uh, to know what was in your heart and whether or not you would keep your commandments. So what is the Son of God? The the nations are your inheritance. So what is the commandments given the Son of God is to bring God to the world. And this testing... And, and cause, cause, I mean, oh goodness, I'm so excited, John, but, but this, this like think, but, I, but I, I don't want people to lose the resonance, so we have to talk slightly ahead for a moment. So let me try and do this succinctly, John. Your beautiful thing that you did around, you're my son, the loved one in whom I'm well pleased, and how in all three of these Old Testament allusions, 
the world is the reason for this. The, the all yep. of creation will be brought in. Yep. Just look at what the devil offers Jesus. Indeed. Indeed. He offers him the world. <laughs> and uh, But it comes in a period of testing where the Deuteronomy text says, testing to know what was in your heart. Indeed. And Jesus is going, I'm not taking the world in a way that denies that I'm the son of God. Oh, my goodness. Like, <laughs> That's amazing. It's magnificent. It's magnificent. <laughs> Let's talk and for three that, more hours, John. <laughs> oh, mate. If, well, if that, if that hasn't whet the appetite of our listeners to stay with us for the what is sometimes referred to as the temptations of Jesus, then I'm not sure what will, because as we lean into that, the layers around that are just stunning and staggering. And, and Jesus' magnificent use of Scripture and how that connects to multiple layers through the Tanakh is just absolutely breathtaking. So I, I, I'm already incredibly excited about that. But but that's been a brilliant summary and, and hopefully very helpful to our listeners in seeing how these passages are being put together, how these words are being constructed. And, and the brilliance of Dr. Luke, a Gentile writer, but perhaps under the tutelage of Paul, really has understood that Jesus is the fulfillment of Tanakh and and the one who is honoured by the Father to carry his word to the nations of the world. Just truly outstanding, David. Well done. John, I am going to have to go and put on yeah. another sweater because I've had so many shivers as a result of this conversation <laughs> that are not as a result of the cold temperature of where I live. Like, goodness me, I feel I feel like you started it where, I, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is exciting. And the, it, I think the hairs on the back of my neck, if they had hairs, they would be standing up right now. <laughs> Listen, mate, you go and change your sweater. I'm actually going to go and make myself some chili. Oh, um, yeah, the Lord. absolutely. I've got some of that ready to go. So, yeah, bless you, man. It's been a fantastic podcast. I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as much as we have. And mm. Jesus at the center of it all is truly glorious and magnificent. Phenomenal. Blessed be his name. Phenomenal. Yeah. Grace and peace to all of you. <laughs> Indeed.